We are up to chapter 4, Mishnah number 25. Elisha ben Avuya Omer. Elisha, the son of Avuya, says, Halomed Yeled, one who studies as a child. Lumahudomo, to what is he compared? Lidyot Suva al Niyar Chadash, to ink written on paper that is fresh, a new paper. When you teach a young student, the writing on the mind is so clear, it's like ink, a new paper. But when someone learns as an old person, to what is that compared? That's comparable to ink written on a smudged paper. So if you want something to last, you want the writing to be imprinted very clearly, then you do it to a young person, old person. There's lots of other stuff there. The data has been erased and rewritten, all kinds of different information on the hard drive, and now it's an older hard drive, and it's not going to be as clear. And thus is our Mishnah. Now, this particular individual, so you'll notice something unusual, almost all the sages that have been featured in Petriavos have been called Rabbi, Rabbi Akiva, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Shimon, etc. Here he's called Elisha Benavuya. He's not given the title Rabbi. And the reason why is because he wasn't a rabbi. More precisely, he was a rabbi, but then he went awry. He went off and he lost his credentials and lost his faith and kind of became a heretic. And this person is one of the most tragic figures in Jewish history. And it's also a very rare phenomenon in Jewish history. Someone who was a great sage, someone who was enumerated amongst the great sages of Israel, but went awry and became a heretic, became a sinner. We've had all kinds of false messiahs, false prophets even amongst our nation. But we've actually never had someone who is the leader of the nation, the Moshe, the Aaron, the Joshua, the prophet, the head of the Sanhedrin. We never had anyone of that caliber who turned out to be a fraud. We've had, again, many false messiahs, but we never really had someone who was a sage of the highest caliber, the leader of the nation, who became a sinner. That's never actually happened. Now, this particular individual was a sage, was a contemporary, was a colleague of the greatest leaders of the nation, and he went awry, he fell from his stature and became a heretic. And that is very, very rare. We have someone like Elisha ben Avuya, who was a bona fide sage, and he went awry. Now, before you ask, JC is not part of this class. He was not a very significant character in Jewish history. He was not a sage and was not anywhere near being a sage, whereas Elisha ben Avuya was. He was a bona fide legitimate sage and he went awry. Now, it's very interesting that the Talmud is almost obsessed with this individual. It's so curious to figure out what went wrong. So we don't really have any teachings of his. This is the only teaching that we have. And it seems like it's a pretty benign teaching. It's basically saying, hey, when you study, when you're a young person, it's going to 
really click. You're going to remember it better. And we said he's an old person. You're going to forget it. It seems like this is something that we didn't really need him to tell us. And I believe this is the only teaching that we have recorded from him in Jewish literature. However, we have all kinds of stories about him that relate to his fall from grace. It seems to me that this story, this individual, was such an anomaly, was such an outlier, that the sages really tried to study what happened, what went wrong. They went to the black box of his life and said, okay, what do we know about his life and where can we see the earliest indication that there was something corrupt, that there was something rotten about him. So the first story we're told, this is in the Talmud, in the book of Chagiga, page 14b. This is a very famous and mysterious teaching. It talks about four sages who entered the pardes, who entered the orchard. Now, what exactly they did It's a subject of tremendous debate. What exactly they did? On a simple level, they entered the highest spheres of learning, of studying. They plumbed the deepest depths of Kabbalah, and they got into the very dangerous territory of advanced learning. There are others that say, well, they actually know. They they divested themselves of a, a body became a soul, ascended to the world of souls, and explored and tried to come back safely. It was almost like a mission to Mars, right? You're leaving this world, you're leaving this atmosphere, you're leaving the regular humans, and you're going off to the place where the aliens hang out, the place where the cosmos are, the place where the galaxies are, the different realms. So it tells us that there were four sages that did that. Ben-Azai, we've seen him earlier in Perkevos. Ben-Zoma, he too was featured earlier. Rabbi Akiva, the greatest sage of that era. And Elisha Ben-Avuya. But it doesn't call him Elisha Ben-Avuya, it calls him by his pejorative, it calls him Acher. And we'll get to why he's called Acher, which means the other one. We'll get to that in a little bit. So they ascend to heaven, they go to the Pardis, they go to the orchard, and Rabbi Akiva he starts warning them about what they should look at and what they should not look at and what they'll see and what they won't see. It's not exactly clear what exactly he's conveying to them, but he is giving them guidance. And then it tells us that of these four people, of this quartet that ascended to the Pardis, to the orchard, three of them suffered irreparable damage. Ben Azai one of the sages, he looked, he looked at where he should not have looked and he died. And our sages tell us that what actually happened here is that when the soul is free from the body, it's liberation. The soul's roots are in heaven and the soul craves to return to heaven. And when Ben Azai's soul was able to be home, so to speak, then he willingly looked at what he shouldn't have looked and he knew he was going to die and that's what he wanted. It's like there's suicide by cop. There's this concept that when someone kills themselves but by forcing, so to speak, or compelling other people to kill him, this is like suicide by spirituality. He wanted to kind of die to liberate his soul to be able to exist in that sphere. 
Benzoma, the other sage, he also looked at where he shouldn't have looked and he became crazy. He was burned from the experience. Acher, which is the pejorative, the nickname of Elisha ben Avuya, he looked at what he shouldn't have looked and he became a heretic. And the way this is described in the Talmud, but this is a common use of term in the Kabbalistic literature, he cut off the saplings, meaning he severed the tree from the root. That's a description of idolatry where you don't realize everything's rooted in God. There's only one real power and everything else exists only insofar as the Almighty wants it to exist. That is described as cutting off, so to speak, the tree from the roots. And that's what it describes over here, what happened to Acher. He became a heretic. He began to think, that there were things that exist outside of God's control. And the Talmud described he saw an angel who was sitting, and how can an angel be sitting? It's not exactly clear what he saw and how it affected him, but we do know that as a result of this, he became a heretic. And Rabbi Akiva, and Rabbi Akiva alone, he went in peace, and he returned in peace. He was not affected at all by this transcendental experience. Now, as I mentioned, this is a Kabbalistic Gemara, Talmud teaching. There is a lot of Kabbalah in the Talmud. However, most instances of Kabbalah Talmud are hidden. You have to really understand what's actually going on to be able to discover what the Kabbalah is, what the mysticism of the Talmud is. However, there's a few pages in Talmud, the book of Chadiga, that address Kabbalah, that address Jewish mysticism head on. And this is where it's found in the teens of the book of Hadiga. So what exactly is going on with these four sages ascending to the Pardes is not exactly immediately clear. And we do find, again, the Kabbalists, they inform us of all kinds of advanced ideas. So for example, Reb Chaim Vital, who is the primary student of the Arizal, and basically what we know of Kabbalah or the Arizal's Luriana Kabbalah comes from Rabbi Chaim Vital, the student of the Arizal. He describes that what was happening here was that they were trying via this prophetic Kabbalistic experience, they were trying to figure out, to identify and to remedy the sin of Adam. The sin of Adam, that's the sin that kind of set the world on its course. And that is the, the flaw, so to speak, that begot the world as we have it. And they wanted to fix it, so to speak, in heaven. They want to go to the roots of it and fix it. And the problem was, is that Elisha ben Avuya, Acher, he got too close to the problem. And instead of the problem being fixed, the problem actually afflicted him even more than it did previously. And that's why he got messed up. That's why he got corrupted as a result of this. So Talmud goes on to say what happened afterwards. After this experience in heaven, Acher, which is again the nickname of Elisha ben Avuya, he heard a prophecy that made him feel like all is lost. He heard a prophetic voice that announced, Shuvu banim shovavim, wayward sons, come back to God. Which is a verse in Jeremiah. 
Come back to God the Almighty wants you back. He wants you to repent. He wants you to return. However, chutz me'acher, the way he heard his prophecy, everyone could come back besides for Acher, besides for Elisha ben Avuya. This person, he is beyond repair. He is irreparable. So when he hears that, he realizes, oh no, I have no chance of returning. I have no chance of repenting. He says, okay, if I can't enjoy the world of the soul, let me at least enjoy the world of the body. And he became a sinner. And he goes out on Shabbos and he starts soliciting prostitutes. And this is very odd because the previous day he's a world-renowned sage and a scholar and suddenly he's behaving in a very depraved fashion. So Talmud says that he goes and encounters this one prostitute and she says to him, what are you doing here? Aren't you the famous Elisha ben Avuya? Aren't you the famous sage that we all know about? So he goes to the ground and he uproots a radish from a patch of radishes, which of course is something we now do on Shabbat. This was Shabbat. And she says to him, oh, you must be someone else. You must be Acher. You must be someone else. And that nickname that he got from this prostitute stuck and thenceforth when he is described in the Talmudic literature, he is called, by this nickname, he is called Acher. And the commentaries explain that there's a lot of symbolism here. A radish is a root vegetable, meaning that the vegetable itself is underground. And, you know, usually it's the opposite. The root is underground and the vegetable comes above the ground. And here it's the opposite. And the commentary suggests maybe what this means is, maybe the symbolism here is, that the reason why he fell, the reason why he became a heretic, is because he wanted to go underground, so to speak, to see the things that really are supposed to be hidden. He went too far to try to visualize what should not be visualized, and therefore he got burned and he got corrupted. Now, this is the Talmud's treatment of, or part of the Talmud's treatment of Acher, of Elisha ben Avuya. But again, there is an obsession in the literature to try to identify the roots of his fall from grace. And the Talmud again says that the root of it is this story, that he went to the paradise, went up to heaven with Rabbi Kiva and other colleagues, and he saw things that he shouldn't have seen. Or he tried to experience things that were above what he was able to absorb. And he got messed up. He got corrupted. But in the Talmud and in the Midrash, this question is explored further. And they even talk about events that preceded Acher's life that were the beginning of the fall from grace. So, for example, one of the sources talks about how Acher's, Elisha ben Avuya's mother, when she was pregnant with him, she was walking past an idolatrous temple. And in the temple, they were cooking pork. And there was the smell, this wafting aroma of the delicious pig. And she was pregnant, so she maybe she had some sort of hormones that were playing around with her, and she said, okay, I would like to taste that. So she capitulated, she she succumbed to the desire, 
and she watched inside the temple. She says, okay, can I have a little bit of this food? And the literature describes how this meat entered her stomach and began pulsating and quivering within her like venom of a poisonous, venomous snake. And that actually infected her unborn child. And there's this idea that there was something that was infected in the child so early because of the actions of the mother that even though it didn't manifest itself to later, but there was something corrupt already earlier. And as an aside, this is an interesting uh, theme that we see in in the Talmud with respect to kosher, this idea that non-kosher food actually affects and infects the soul and makes it less connected to spirituality, whereas kosher food has the opposite effect. And even though, you know, the Talmud talks about how a pregnant woman, because she has a craving, and if that craving is not met, is not fulfilled, there's a risk of the child actually being injured and impacted negatively. So there are certain instances where, where a pregnant woman has a craving and she is allowed to capitulate, even though it's not kosher. Nevertheless, the non-kosher food will do what non-kosher food does, and the child was impacted. On the flip side, we have the story of Antoninus, the great hero of, of the Roman Empire. According to the Midrash, and we've spoken about this story in the past, Rabbi Judah the Prince, when he was an infant, because he was circumcised, they were going to kill him because the Romans had banned circumcision. So they demanded that his mother come to Rome. Along the way, she befriends a Roman mother with a little Roman infant, and they swap babies. So the non-Jewish woman takes Rabbi Judah the Prince and feeds him, and the Jewish woman takes the uncircumcised Roman baby and brings him to Rome, and obviously the Romans are okay, okay, you didn't circumcise this one, that's fine, he could live. Now, Antoninus eventually becomes the Roman emperor, but according to Jewish tradition in the Talmud, he actually converted and he would study every day with Rabbi Judah the prince, and he became a very righteous individual. And our sages tell us that the reason why he became such a friend of Rabbi Judah the prince, the reason why he had such an affinity for holiness, and the reason why he eventually converted it's because what he ate as a suckling infant, he ate kind of the food from the kosher sources, the food filtered through the mother ate only kosher, and that empowered his soul and made him likely to be drawn to holiness and to righteousness, and eventually he himself became Jewish. So again, we have the first suggestion here is that Elisha ben Avuya, Acher, the reason why he went awry, that goes all the way to events that preceded his birth when his mother ate non-kosher, that permanently affected him negatively. Now, in the Jerusalem Talmud, it gives us an interesting episode that happened by his bris, by his circumcision ceremony. It says that his father, his father, of course, is called Avuya, his father was a very wealthy man and a very prominent person. And therefore, when he had a son, 
and he was making a circumcision ceremony for his son. All the great sages and all the prominent people of Jerusalem, they all came to join the bris, to join the circumcision. And it says that the great Rabbi Yehoshua and the great Rabbi Eliezer, these are the two students of Rabbi Yehoshua, the two teachers of Rabbi Akiva, and of course two people that have been featured in our book hitherto. They were participating at this ceremony. And as is common today, when there's a bris, sometimes you got to arrange the kid and the moel and things. There's, there's some extra time for people to sit and to chat and to wait for the ceremony to begin. So there was a little bit of extra time. And there's the two great sages. And they say, okay, everyone there is talking about sports, about politics, about business. We're sages. We should talk about things that we're interested in. Namely, we should talk words of Torah. So these two sages start talking words of Torah. And what happens when Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer start talking words of Torah? The angels, they all come and they want to listen in. And before you know it, there's this ring of heavenly fire surrounding these two sages at the bris, at the circumcision ceremony. So the father of the baby is interrupted with the preparations, sees there's a, there's a fire. So he runs over and says, what's going on? Do you want to burn down my house? So they respond to him, no, 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 this is not, a, this is not a fire that's going to damage your house. This is the fire of Torah. That whenever people are studying with such intensity, the same way it was at Sinai, with the same joy and delight that was present at Sinai, just like by Sinai, there was fire, so it's over here, there's fire. So Avuya, the father of this new baby, he's a businessman, he's a wealthy person, but he says, oh my goodness, this is the power of Torah? This baby that's going to be circumcised today, he is going to be dedicated solely to Torah. And indeed, they circumcised the baby, named him Elisha, Elisha ben Avuya. And from a very early age, this child was reared as Torah. But our sages discovered there was some little flaw in this story. We try to study Torah because it's the Almighty's Torah. It's a great mitzvah. Not because, oh, we could earn fanfare. People will be impressed. It's so powerful. It's got fire of Torah. Elisha ben Avuya, his father, Avuya is directing the child to try to pick up all the other things about Torah, the ancillary things about Torah, the mystique and the intrigue of Torah, not because of Torah itself, but because of what it has with it, what it portends. And therefore, because the root of Elisha ben Avuya's Torah connection and study, because the root was flawed, the building or the edifice was flawed as well. And the idea is, is that, of course, none of us are perfect. And we're all flawed. But there is an emphasis over here that whenever we have a foundation, the foundation at least should be solid. Because you make a small mistake in a foundation, if you're building a skyscraper, the slightest mistake in the foundation will threaten the integrity of the entire building. And you know, if you make a mistake on the 10th floor, it's not as bad. But you make a, you're an inch off from the foundation, and then there's already room for the entire building to be on shaky 
grounds. So here is the foundation. This is the spiritual foundation of this child. And because it was done for all kinds of other ancillary reasons, there was something missing and that manifested itself many years later. The Talmud of the book of Kiddushin, page 39b, speculates that maybe there was something else that may have contributed towards his eventual spiritual demise. And the Talmud's subject matter is mitzvos and reward for mitzvos. So we know we do the Almighty's mitzvah. The Almighty says, okay, I'll cover you. I'll give you reward. I'll give you goodness. However, the goodness is delayed to the spiritual world. We don't get reward in this world. We get reward in the next world. That's the bargain. And then the Thomas says, well, well, okay, but there's certain verses in the Torah that talk about reward and living a long life. And quotes a verse about honoring parents. You honor your parents, you have a long life. You send away the mother bird before you take the baby chicks or the eggs and you'll have a long life. So how do we understand this contradiction? Is it going to contribute to a long life? Or is it something the reward we have to get in the spiritual world? That's the question. So Talmud says, Rabbi Yaakov, one of the sages, he said that, no, when it talks about a long life, it doesn't mean long life in this world. It means a long life in the spiritual world. The world, the world that really is long, that's the world in which the reward for mitzvot, including reward for mitzvot of honoring parents and sending away the mother bird, that is the world in which the reward is dispensed. And then says the Talmud, this Rabbi Yaakov, who informs us that when the, when the, that when the Torah says you'll get long life for honoring parents and for sending away the mother bird, it's a reference to long life in the spiritual world. This Rabbi Yaakov was actually a grandson of Acher, of Elisha ben Avuya. And then it says, had the grandfather known this teaching of the grandson, he wouldn't have sinned. Why? Because Elisha ben Avuya once witnessed the following event. He saw a father tell a son, Hey, look, look at that tree. Don't you see on the top of that tree? There's a nest and there's a mother egg and there's a mother bird sitting on top of a bunch of eggs. Why don't you climb the tree? And send away the mother bird so you can fulfill the mitzvah of sending away the mother bird and then taking the eggs. So the son dutifully obeys and climbs the tree and sends away the mother bird and then falls off the tree and dies. And Elisha ben Avuya sees this and he says, Oh, the Torah is not true. Because the Torah says about two mitzvahs, you have a long life. Honor your parents, send away the mother bird before you take the babies. And here we have someone who's doing both of those events, listening to his father, honoring his parents, and sending with the mother bird. And amidst this act that combines both promises of a long life, he died instantly. It must be the Torah's not true. Says the Talmud, had Elisha ben Avuya known his grandson's teaching, that's not a reference for long life in this world, it's a reference for long life in the eternal world, he wouldn't have gone awry.
And that's, again, the Talmud's other approach as to what sent him off. And the Talmud adds, well, there's another opinion as to what sent him off. When he saw Hadrian, the wicked Roman emperor, killing rabbis, and he saw one particular grisly and gruesome image of one of the great sages who had his tongue cut off and the tongue was being munched on by a by a pig. When he saw that, he says, oh no, how is it possible that a tongue that studied so much Torah is now going to be consumed by a pig? It must be the Torah is not true. God, God does not have our back. And therefore he went awry. So regardless of what the reason why, again, we have a great sage, a tragic story, a great sage, someone who was the primary teacher of Rabbi Meir. Before Rabbi Meir became a student of Rabbi Tiva, he was a student of Elisha ben Avuya when he was still righteous. And this great sage becomes a heretic, becomes a sinner, becomes a violer of all the laws of Torah. Now the Talmud tells us that his student, Rabbi Meir, actually kept on studying Torah from him, even after his teacher went awry. And the Talmud describes that Rabbi Meir was such a skillful student, he was able to separate the good from the bad. He would separate the heresy from the actual Torah. The way it's described, he would be able to eat the fruit and discard the peel. He was able to study from Acher, from Elish ben even after Acher went awry and became a heretic. The Talmud gives a very dramatic story how it was Shabbos, and Acher, this former, now disgraced sage, is riding a horse on Shabbat, which is, of course, something which is prohibited on Shabbat. But his student, Rabbi Meir, is walking alongside him because he wants to study Torah from him. And they're traveling, and Acher is teaching him Torah, which is it's kind of a crazy sight. Rabbi Meir, the great sage... And Elisha ben Avuya Acher, the former sage, riding a horse on Shabbat, violating the Shabbat, and they're studying Torah together. It's a very strange image, a very strange picture. But anyhow, they arrive at a certain point, and Acher says, you have to stop. I'm continuing, but you have to stop. Because I've been counting the footsteps of the horse, and I've calculated that this is the point where the Tchum Shabbos ends, where the boundary of Shabbos ends. And you're not allowed to walk past this point because you still, you're still keeping Shabbos. And therefore, he says, okay, you stop. Which, which of course, shows that, you know, this is someone of immense cognitive capacity. He's talking about Torah, but he's also on the side of his head keeping track of the footfalls of his horse and calculating exactly what's 2,000 cubits that would be the end of the Shabbos boundary. Now, Rabbi Meir, for his whole life, kept on urging and begging his teacher to return. And he's always telling him, just return, return. The Almighty says, you can come back. Don't believe what you heard. Don't believe that prophetic voice. He said, oh, you can't come back. That's just a test. You could come back. He was very desirous that his teacher or his early teacher would not be a sinner forever. And the Talmud tells us, that Elisha ben Avuya is on his deathbed, is on his deathbed, and Rabbi Meir comes to visit him, and again, even on his deathbed, tries to coax him to repent. 
And Elisha says, well, if I repent, will God accept me? And Rabbi Meir says, yes. Even people that have gone very far, if they repent, then they are still welcome back into God's good graces, even if they repent on their deathbed. It's a true statement to say that if someone is still alive, they could still accomplish their life mission. Because once someone cannot accomplish the life mission anymore, then there's no reason for them to be alive. So if you know that you're alive, if you're still alive, there's still hope for you. You could be on your deathbed and your last dying breaths and you repent, then you, if you repent properly, you can indeed become righteous even if you lived a wicked life. So Rabbi Meir tells this to Elisha on his deathbed and he starts crying. And amidst his tears, he dies. But then there's this whole question, okay, did he repent fully? Was this a full repentance or not? And the Talmud gives a little postscript here that there was an entire debate in heaven whether or not Elisha Benavuya can indeed have his day in court, can be judged, and can have a place in eternity. On one hand, he was very righteous, but he became a sinner. But he didn't, or at least according to one opinion, didn't try to affect other people to make other people sinners. And did he repent? Did he not repent? It's an entire question. And eventually the Talmud concludes that Rabbi Meir says, when I die, I'm going to guarantee that I'm going to bring him back. I'm going to rescue him. I'm going to rehabilitate him. But it's a very long discussion. The Talmud says, well, if there's smoke coming over his grave, then we know that he's repented or he has not repented. It's not so clear what is going on. Baramir says, I, he went into the grave and covered the smoke and says, okay, I'm going to make sure that all the punishment, so to speak, of Elisha is going to be extinguished. Now, the Talmud gives us a very interesting story that happened to his next of kin. The Talmud says that many years later, the daughter of Elisha ben Avuya, the daughter of Acher, she was very poor. And she had to go raise money because otherwise, you know, she needed charity. So she went to visit Rabbi Judah the Prince, who was the leader of the Jewish people, the wealthiest Jew. And she asked him for, for support. She asked him for a donation. She asked him for charity. So Rabbi Judah the Prince asked her, okay, well, tell me about your family. So she says, I am the daughter of Acher. I'm the daughter of Elisha ben Avuya, who, of course, is a notorious, infamous person in Jewish history. He was someone who was a great sage, great potential, could have been one of the great leaders of Jewish people, went awry. So Rabbi Judah Prince meets his daughter. He's like, I cannot believe that there is still a descendant of Acher still alive. And he quotes a verse 
that says that someone like Achar, someone so righteous, is not going to have any children. The children are all going to die. So the daughter says, think about his Torah. Don't think about his deeds. Of course, Achar's deeds were very corrupt. He became a terrible sinner. But his Torah? His Torah was great. And Torah is unimpeachable. It cannot be influenced by anything negative. And the Talmud describes that a heavenly fire descended and began to attack the bench, the chair of Rabbi Judah the Prince. It's almost as if that the Almighty is like defending Acher, defending him, defending his honor. And Rabbi Judah the Prince sees this and he says, it's unbelievable the power of Torah. Someone like Acher, who had Torah, but was such a corrupt person, such a sinner, such a heretic. Yet when someone attacks them, the force of Torah, so to speak, defends Acher. How much more will Torah, so to speak, defend, or will God, so to speak, defend those who not only have Torah, but also have good character and good behavior, and also maintain, so to speak, noble and distinct behavior. Now, it's really interesting, if you knew the story of Acher, it's really interesting to find his teaching featured in Pirkei This is the book that collects the axioms, the aphorisms of the great sages. And here we have someone who was not a great sage. He, maybe at one point in his life, he was a great sage. That's what it seems like. But he became a sinner. And in fact, all the teachings that we have from Acher, all the stories about Acher are all about his fall from grace. This is the only teaching, to my knowledge, that we have of his that's recorded for posterity that is something positive. You would imagine this is someone who at one point in his life was a great sage on the level of Rabbi Kiva and his colleagues. And you would imagine there was a lot of teachings that he had that could have been documented in the literature. But for obvious reasons, because he became persona non grata amongst the Jewish people, all his teachings were gotten rid of. They're not included in the Mishnah. And yet we have over here a teaching in Perkyavos that is included from him. Now, I would surmise that this is not something that you have to be a genius to figure out. You don't have to be a genius to say, hey, the things you learn as a kid are things that stick. But it seems like there was an effort to include a teaching from Lishman Avuya in Perkei Avos, in Chapters of the Fathers. I would suggest that we know the architect of the Mishnah was Rabbi Judah the Prince himself. And Rabbi Judah the Prince had an epiphany when he met the daughter of Acher asking for charity, asking for tzedakah. And it seems like he learned a lesson that the Torah of Acher is still holy and pure, even though he himself became corrupt. I could speculate that when Rabbi Judah the Prince, when he was writing down this book, and he was collecting the greatest teachings, the greatest ethical teachings of the sages, he made a point to include one from Elisha ben Avuya, which is almost part of his penitence, part of his rehabilitation, 
maybe he was jolted by this story of the daughter coming to visit him and says, you know what, I'm going to kind of give him this distinct honor and I'm not going to name him by his pejorative acher. I'm going to call him by his given name, Elisha ben Avuya, because of this instance and because of the power of Torah to be able to, so to speak, withstand a person's negative character. Now, this teaching, it seems like it's it's very obvious. You know, when you have a young person, you teach him Torah, it's like a ink written on a new parchment that's almost unerasable. Whereas if you teach an old person, old person learning, they, they forget, their minds occupy with other things. And this, of course, would encourage us, if we want to teach our children Torah, let's start young. Don't wait till they get older and their brain and their mind is less receptive, less absorbent. The commentaries here bring another analogy. They compare it to etching in stone versus etching in sand. You can make a nice message in sand, but it's not going to last the night. Whereas if you etch something in stone, it can last for hundreds of years. Nevertheless, when we read this, we may say, hey, you know what? I didn't study enough as a kid, and now I'm old, and here the Torah tells us that what you study as an adult is not going to last. Maybe I shouldn't study at all. Maybe you say, you know what? Well, better luck next time. No, of course, that is not correct thinking for two reasons. First of all, it's still a mitzvah. It's a mitzvah to study even if you're going to forget it. And even if you will forget it, there are parts of it that you won't forget. Rabbein Yonah, he gives an analogy. He says, you have people who are being hired to fill up pails of water, but a pail of water that has a hole in it. So if someone hires you, I'm going to pay you $100 an hour to fill up punctured pails. Should you do it or not? So if you're a fool, you say, hey, this is just useless work because eventually the water is all going to leak out. But if you're smart, you say, hey, I'm being paid $100 an hour, $200 an hour. I'm still going to be paid. Okay. So what difference does it make to me if it gets lost or doesn't last? I'm getting paid and that's what matters. The Torah, the Almighty promises us that... When we study Torah, he's going to pay us really, really well. Some of us have better retention. Some of us are younger than older. Some of us have a more blank canvas upon which we can write the Torah. But regardless, it's encouraged to us to continue studying irrespective of our situation. I wanted to speculate maybe one more idea you know, of all the teachings that Acher surely taught in his life, why is this one the one that is being conveyed? You can imagine there could have been a lot of things that he could have taught. And what's the connection between this teaching and his lifetime? So maybe we could speculate. Acher was someone that from a very young age, he was taught Torah. From a very young age, right? His father, by his wrist, said, okay, I'm dedicating this to Torah study. So as a, as a youth, he was just bombarded with Torah. When he was a blank canvas, when he was a clean, brand new page, words of Torah written on that. Maybe when he became a heretic, maybe he tried to learn other things. 
And he tried to forget Torah. He said, I'm done with Torah. Let me get into philosophy or idolatry, other things. And he found that no matter how much he tried to forget Torah, it still stuck. He still remembered it. And no matter how much he tried to study other things, the new heresy of his new interest, he couldn't retain it as much. So it's almost like he's declaring, despite all my efforts to rid myself of Torah and to absorb new things, I can't do it. The words of Torah that were etched into me as a youth are sticking. And maybe we can suggest even further, you know, he's being rehabilitated. We have Rabbi Meir fighting for him. We have even Rabbi Judah the Prince saying, hey, you know what? I misjudged him. His Torah is still the Almighty's Torah. And of course, he's featured in our Mishnah. He's featured forever in the book of Mishnah. Why is he being rehabilitated? What merit does he have to have this reclamation? Maybe that's the answer. The Torah that was written on his heart, that was written when his heart was still very fertile. When the canvas was ready, when the paper was new. And therefore, the Torah was still there. And Torah is uncorruptible. And therefore, there is still the force of Torah that he has within him, and that is still to his eternal merit. I think it's a very interesting Mishnah, a very interesting idea. I think it's a useful idea to try to study as much as we can as we're young because we get older and our ability to retain wanes. But I think his story, it's a very dramatic story. I think there's a lot of lessons. It's a sad and tragic story on one hand. But it seems like that there's also a positive, inspirational takeaway to the story the fact that he was rehabilitated. He was, so to speak, reined in and brought back to the fold in this Mishnah and in the intercessions of his student, Rabbi Meir. And maybe the lesson for us is, is that there's never a time where all hope is lost, even on his deathbed. And even apparently after he died... Rabbi Meir was fighting for him to try to reclaim him and to try to save him. Of course, it's a tragic story. This is someone that our sages worked really hard to identify where things went wrong before his life. His mother ate non-kosher by his bris. He was dedicated to it for the wrong reasons. He saw things that sent him off. He saw the tongue of the great sage. He saw this philosophically, theologically challenging episode of the young boy going up the tree to go get the, send away the mother bird and get the chicklets. He saw, of course, things that he shouldn't have seen when he went up to heaven, when he went up to the paradise with Rabbi Tiva. Whatever the reason why, he went awry. And it is, of course, a great loss to our people that we had someone who was such a great sage, could have been one of the greatest sages of our history, and lost it. But I think there's a little bit of a silver lining in the fact that his story does not necessarily end in ignominy. He was rehabilitated. He's included in this Mishnah. He does have, apparently, a little bit of a connection to eternity, thanks to his Torah and thanks to his student, Rabbi Meir, the primary author of 
the Mishnah, one of the great sages of all time, who fought for him and interceded on his behalf. My email address, as always, is rabbiwalbeatgmail.com. I always look forward to hearing from all of y'all. Questions, comments, or feedback of any sort is always appreciated.